Good morning. (laughs) When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The word of the Lord. Can you tell somebody who grew up reading the Bible? No rehearsal, just knocking out those names. Well, listen, we are beginning a brand new sermon series this morning called Public Faith. And here's the big project. We live in an incredibly pluralistic society. In other words, you're surrounded by people with radically different beliefs about pretty much everything. And not just beliefs about religion or spirituality, beliefs about all kinds of things like race, gender, sexuality, politics, freedom, justice, equality, and heck, let's just throw in masks while we're at it. (laughs) It's a pluralistic society. So if you're spiritually curious or exploring faith, then here's one of the big challenges for you. Um, It's easy to think that Christianity, or at least a certain kind of Christianity, is really just, it's cultural imperialism. It's it's like cultural brainwashing, that if you become a Christian, then it's going to uh, just turn you into a mindless clone. It's going to make you dress a certain way, think a certain way, talk a certain way, vote a certain way. It's going to squash diversity. It's going to assimilate you into one dominant oppressive culture and just completely erase whatever's unique about your cultural identity. That's a huge challenge. And because of parts of Christianity's history in this world, it's really not hard to see why people think that. And as a result, there's a narrative in our culture that says, hey, if you want to be a person of faith, if belief in God works for you, then that's great, but you should keep that faith private where it belongs. In other words, this, you know, this narrative is, is it's sacrosanct in our culture. It's inviolable. 
It says that if you bring your faith out into public, it is inevitably going to make you a cultural imperialist. It's going to make you intolerant and oppressive of others. Now, if you are a Christian, you might believe that narrative too. But even if you don't, you feel the force of it. In other words, the challenge for you is how to be open and honest about your faith, about who you are as a person, but to do so in a way that you're not either paralyzed by fear or an insensitive jerk to all the people around you. So here's the big question. What if the gospel of Jesus Christ not only is not the culturally imperialistic menace that so many people think it is. Instead, what if the gospel really is the only thing that can come into your life and make you the very best possible neighbor to the people around you? And even more than that, what if the gospel is the one thing that can actually affirm and honor all the different cultures of the world, but also unite us together in one shared story, a shared identity that brings true justice and peace to the world? I know that's a big what if, but that's what we're going to look at over the next several weeks this summer. What does it mean to be a public Christian? Especially, what does it mean to live lives of justice? And what does it mean to live lives of evangelism? And how do we bring all of that together into one coherent, integrated life? This morning is introduction. We're, we're looking at this very famous event called Pentecost. God pours out his Holy Spirit on the first Christians. And, and um, there's this multi-ethnic, multicultural crowd that's amazed. They say, what does this mean? Let's ask the same question. What does this mean? This story shows us three things about the gospel. It shows us that the gospel is public truth, that it's universal mission, and that it's supernatural power. The gospel is public truth, it's universal mission, and it's a supernatural power, okay? First, the gospel is public truth. Now, let's begin by getting a little backstory. Uh, about 50 days before this happened, Jesus was crucified. Then he physically rose from the dead, and he spent the next several weeks appearing to his disciples and preparing them to carry the gospel out into the world. Now, right before this passage happens, the disciples have just seen Jesus ascend back up into heaven to the Father. So here they are all together in one house. There's 120 of them. They're all by themselves. They, they, they spent three years with Jesus, but now here they are, and the physical presence of Jesus is no longer with them. But all of a sudden, a rushing wind fills the house, and flames of fire appear on top of each one of their heads. Now, in the Bible, wind and fire are signs of the presence of God. God pours out His Holy Spirit on the disciples, uh, empowering them to speak in all these um, different languages. And usually, in this passage, that's what normally gets all the attention here. It's this amazing supernatural event. Everybody's speaking in tongues. Ooh. And we're going to talk more about that in just a bit. But here's the first thing I want us to notice. What are they actually saying? That this multi-ethnic, multicultural crowd is gathered outside the house, and they tell us what the disciples are saying. They say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now that phrase, the mighty works of God, in the Bible, that doesn't just mean random miracles. No. 
This phrase is a way of describing God's supernatural intervention in history, in this world, in order to rescue people from evil and deliver them from oppression. So one of the most famous examples of the mighty works of God is the Exodus. God rescues Israel from slavery. He parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land, the mighty works of God. But here in Acts 2, um, it means the ultimate example of God's intervention in history, the life, death, and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. The, the, the mighty works of God is simply another way of describing the gospel. That's what the disciples are proclaiming here, and that's what I want to really press in on for this first point. The gospel is a proclamation. Literally, it means good news. It's like headline news, extra, extra, read all about it. The gospel is a proclamation of something that God is doing in history. And if you think about it, you realize that is very different from every other religion. As far as I've ever been able to discover, every other religion or spiritual tradition or spiritual practice is primarily about the mighty works you must do in order to connect with God or achieve salvation or nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness or whatever it might be. But the essence of Christianity, the foundation of it, the heartbeat of it, is not primarily about something you must do to connect with God. It's about what God is doing in history in order to connect with you. The mighty works of God. Now here's why this is so important for us. That the mighty works of God, by definition, is something that actually happens in this world. It makes a difference in this world. It changes this world. It changes society. It changes history. Now, either God has acted in history through Jesus Christ, or he hasn't. But if he has acted in history, then by definition, that is not a private consumer option. It's public truth for the whole world. Now, the problem is that's not the way we typically think about faith and spirituality in our culture. Remember the narrative we began with. It says that faith and spirituality is fine as long as you keep it private, as long as you keep it to yourself. So in our culture, um, faith and spirituality might be something that it might make a difference in your personal life, but it's not something, it's not the kind of thing that we think about as making a difference in this world. It's really more about your personal story. And especially in our age of social media, it's, it's something that might become a part of your personal brand or your identity formation. It's a lifestyle choice, and it's totally optional. That's what we think about faith and spirituality in our culture. I mean, its main purpose in our lives is to be one of many consumer options that we pick and choose to create a customized personal identity for ourselves. It's like changing gyms or changing hairstyles. So in our culture, when we say things like, you know what, Christianity just really isn't my thing. To us, what we're saying is the same thing as if we were to say something like, you know what, CrossFit really isn't my thing. I'm more of a yoga type of person. Or, you know what? Deodorant really isn't my kind of thing. I'm more of an au naturel kind of person. <laughs> it's a lifestyle choice. It, and it's totally optional. But you know what that is? That's a category mistake. Friends, listen. Either Jesus Christ rose from the dead or he did not. But if he did rise from the dead, don't you see? 
When we say, you know what, Christianity really isn't my thing, what we're really saying is more like, you know what, gravity really isn't my thing. It's, it's a category mistake. Friends, the gospel is not a personal, private, consumer option. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's public truth about something that God has done in history. It's, it's public truth about who God is and what He's doing in history. That's one of the main points of this passage. So when God pours out His Holy Spirit on the disciples and, and propels them out into public with their faith, He's propelling them out into public with this message about, uh, about the gospel, about what God is doing in history and calling people to respond to it. It's not intended for private consumption. It's intended for public consumption. And you realize that puts us really sideways with our culture. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen that the gospel is public truth, but secondly, we need to see it's a universal mission. Remember, we said at the beginning that it's easy to think that, that if you go public with your faith, that Christianity is really just another way of doing cultural imperialism. It's a way of squashing diversity and squeezing everybody into one dominant oppressive culture. But Acts chapter 2, this story here, really is the undoing of that narrative. How? Well, um, in order to understand this, really what we need to do is go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates this world as a place of beauty, harmony, peace, perfection, and a place of diversity. When you read through Genesis 1 over and over, it says God created everything according to its kind. There's endless variation, endless diversity. Diversity was God's idea, and he loves it. But then, in Genesis chapters 3 through 11, the, it's the story of how the world falls apart because of human rebellion against God. And the climax of that rebellion is Genesis chapter 11 and the city of Babel. Do you, have you ever heard that story? The city of Babel is all about how the whole earth had one language, and they were all gathered together in one place, and they said, come, let us build a tower into the heavens and make a name for ourselves. You know what they were doing? They were building an empire. You know, imperialism comes from the word for empire. And that means that imperialism is what empires do. It's all about control and domination. It's all about squashing diversity and squeezing, assimilating everybody into one dominant, oppressive culture so that, they're, so that everything is one. There's one language, one cultural identity, one way of being in the world, one emperor, one ring to bind them all and, and in the darkness bind them. It's all about making everything one. It's assimilation, it's domination, it's control. Now, what does God do about that? In Genesis chapter 11, it says that he comes down, he scatters all the nations across the face of the earth, and he confuses their language so that nobody can understand each other. Basically, God is forcing diversity on them. He's reasserting his purposes for this world, and he's subverting the imperialistic impulse for assimilation, domination, and oppression. And you realize that imperialistic impulse is in every single one of us. We all do this. We all want control. We all want to make a name for ourselves. We all, you know, as the old Burger King motto used to say, we all want to have it our way. 
that imperialistic impulse is in every single one of us. So it's not just capital E global empire, it's little case E individual empires. We all have this impulse. Now, you, you go from Babel, and then you fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Are you beginning to see what's going on in this passage? It's the reversal of Babel. In Babel, the whole earth had one language, but nobody could understand each other. But here in Acts chapter 2, all of the nations, all of the cultures are, are gathered in one place, but instead of the gospel going out to them in one language and, and demanding that they all submit to it, the gospel is going out to each of them in their own language. Friends, this is God's ultimate answer, his ultimate solution to empire. And especially when you realize that these first Christians, where are they? They're in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at that time was the biggest and most powerful empire that had ever existed in the world. Uh, there's a Christian theologian named Willie Jennings. He's a wonderful theologian. He wrote a great commentary on the book of Acts. And because he's an African-American man, he has a tendency to see things that some of us might not see as quickly. And here's what he says. He says, the book of Acts takes place in empire, the Roman Empire. And this is not a fact that we should ever let escape our attention. The goal of the Roman Empire was to shape the world in its own image. This is always the desire of empire. Thus, life under empire is always life under threat of assimilation and transformation through the weakening and even loss of cultural identities and religious sensibilities. Now, that's a mouthful, but here's what he's saying. The goal of the Roman Empire was the same as the goal of Babel, to squash diversity and to assimilate everybody into one dominant culture. And, and that is always rebellion against God's purposes for this world. So if you look at the history of Christianity throughout the world, you'll see, you know, where are Christians in the world today? You know, it began in Jerusalem with brown-skinned people. Then it spread to Rome. And then it, it, um, it spread to Europe and then to, uh, and, and then to North America. But where are most of the Christians in the world today? They're not in America. They're in Asia. They're in Latin America. They're in Africa. That means the typical face of a Christian today is not a middle-aged white man. It's a teenage African girl. Friends, empire always seeks to squash everybody into one dominant culture. And that is always rebellion against God's purposes in the world. So if you look at the very end of the biblical story, Revelation 21, 22, what do we see there? I mean, it's God's ultimate vision for the world, a new heavens and a new earth. But one of the main things you see is, is this multicultural, multi-ethnic community that's always been God's purposes and intentions, and that those purposes and intentions exist even into the renewal of all things. And that's what we see in the world today where the typical face of Christianity is not me, but, but a brown-skinned girl. Friends, that's what the gospel does. In other words, we could say it like this, that the gospel does not assimilate and, and everyone into one dominant culture. It accommodates itself to all the different cultures of the world. 
That's the big idea in this passage this morning. When God pours out his Holy Spirit on the disciples, empowering them to speak the gospel in all the different languages of the world, it's a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural proclamation of God's intervention in history. It's God's way of saying, look, the gospel is for everybody. It's public truth for the whole world. And yes, there's one unchanging message But the amazing thing about the gospel is that it doesn't assimilate everyone into one dominant culture. It accommodates itself to all the different cultures of the world. Or we could say it like this. You know what code switching is? Code switching is when you live in one culture and you have one language, but then you're forced to to navigate your way through another culture by learning the language of that culture just to survive. For, for most of us, those of us who are white, it, you know, we really don't have to do that in this culture. But if you're a person of color, you always have to do this. You're always having to adapt and accommodate yourself just to make yourself understood in this dominant white culture. Friends, when you look at Acts chapter 2, do you realize what's going on here? God is the ultimate code switcher. He's so passionate that you would be able to hear and understand and embrace the the public truth of his intervention in history that rather than force you to adapt and assimilate and accommodate yourself to him, he adapts and accommodates himself to you. So if you're exploring faith, if you're spiritually curious this morning, then here's what this means for you. Yes, Christians have many times, too many times, actually been the cultural imperialists um, that we fear they have been. That's happened, but don't let that fool you into making the category mistake. The gospel is not a private consumer option. It's public truth for the whole world. So the big question for you, if you're exploring faith, is not whether or not this works for you, but whether or not it's true. And if you are a Christian, this means that, that as you bring your faith out into public, it means that you learn to accommodate and adapt yourself to the world around you. That doesn't mean compromising the truth. Remember, the gospel, it's public truth for the whole world. It's like gravity. It doesn't change. It does mean you learning to get really curious about other people. It means you learning to, to find out what are their dreams, what are their hopes and their fears and their longings. It means you learning what speaks to their heart, what's sacred to them. And then learning to adapt and accommodate yourselves so you can make the gospel comprehensible to them. It means you learning to code switch. That's what's going on here. It's a universal mission. It doesn't assimilate everyone into one dominant culture. It it adapts and accommodates itself to all the different cultures of the world. Now, um, This is introduction, so we can't get into all the details of what this looks like this morning. That's why we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at this. But there's one more big question we need to answer today in order to do this. We've seen the gospel is public truth, and it's universal mission. But lastly, we need to see that the gospel is supernatural power. Because here's the question. How do we actually do this? Because I don't know about you, but I don't speak in tongues. I know people who do, but I don't do it. And in the Bible, there are actually a couple of different kinds of speaking in tongues. One of them is the kind of tongues that it really it's like a private language between you and God. And you see that kind of tongues in 1 Corinthians 
14. But there's another kind of tongues that's here in Acts chapter 2 where people are actually speaking other people's native language. Now, I know people who speak in the first kind of tongues, and I've heard of people doing the second kind of tongues, but I've never met anybody who knows how to speak a language that they didn't grow up learning supernaturally like this. So the big question is, what does this mean for us? How do we do this? Especially, how do we learn to adapt and accommodate ourselves to other cultures, other people, in order to make the gospel comprehensible to them? Well, the, the basic answer is, we don't. God does. Because one of the main things that we see here in Acts chapter 2, and really throughout the book of Acts, is not human beings exercising our power. It's God exercising His power. We're just vessels. We're, we're just an instrument. So here's my big encouragement, really, for all of us. At the very beginning of this passage, here's what's going on. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, it doesn't tell us what they were doing. But elsewhere in the book of Acts, whenever those, those Christians are gathered together, most of the time it tells us what they were doing. They were worshiping God. They were praying. They were fasting. They were seeking God. Can you imagine what it would have been like for these first disciples? They're used to having the, the physical presence of Jesus with them. And now all of a sudden, that's been taken away from them. Can you imagine how desperately they would have been seeking the presence of God? They're praying. They're fasting. They're seeking God. Are we? One of my deepest longings for this church is that we would become more and more a community of prayer that we would become more and more a community of deep, passionate, relentless seeking of God. That's why we have prayer meetings on Zoom throughout the week. That's why we have a prayer meeting before church on Sundays where people gather to, to beg for the presence of God in our service. That's why we have all church prayer once a month at something we call Unison. In fact, one of the main things we're talking about right now is how can we... Um, how can we shape this community even more into a community of prayer, including more prayer here in Sunday morning worship services. You know, one of the most amazing things is that throughout history, there have been many times when God has poured out His Spirit on the world, when God has literally come down and, and, and begun a movement in this world, a supernatural movement where people are, are coming to faith, where people are seeing Jesus and coming to faith in Him at a viral level. One of my favorite stories is, um, happened in New York City in 1857. You know, at that time, there was a severe economic downturn. Banks were failing. Railroads were bankrupt. Uh, factories were closing. And the churches were empty. But there was a, a Dutch Reformed church in downtown on Fulton Street in New York City. And they hired a guy named Jeremiah Lanfear to come and reach out to the community around the church. And one of the first things he did was he put an ad in the paper for a prayer meeting happening once, once a week at 12 noon. The first meeting was September 23rd, 1857. When Jeremiah Lanfear showed up for that first prayer meeting, he sat all by himself for the first half hour until finally six people came and prayed with him the next week there was 20 people the next week there was 40 people and then after that they decided to start having the prayer meeting every day of the week within six months 10,000 people were praying 
throughout the city in prayer meetings every day of the week. Within nine months, 50,000 people had converted to Christianity and joined the church. And that's at a time when the population of New York was only around 800,000 people. That's like one in every 16 people. Over the next two years, this supernatural movement of God spread throughout the rest of the country to places like Washington, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Cleveland, Louisville, and even here in St. Louis. In fact, over the next couple of years, it spread all over the world to places like Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, Europe, South Africa, Australia, and even the Pacific Islands. And it all began with a handful of people who had a burden to seek God in prayer. Friends, there have been many times throughout history where God has acted supernaturally in this world. And, and one of the amazing things about these different movements of God's is that they're all different. They're all diverse. They never really look the same. But one of the amazing things, one of the constant things, the things that does remain the same, is that in almost every single case, they all began with a handful of people who had a burden to seek God in prayer, and they stuck with it. The reason they could do that and the reason we can do that is because we have a Savior named Jesus Christ who had a burden to seek you, and he stuck with it all the way to the cross. You know what Jesus Christ was doing when he came to earth? He was code switching. He was accommodating himself to all the different cultures of the world. Because think about it. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who's, who invented diversity. If anyone in the universe has the, 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 um, the right to demand that everybody assimilate themselves to him and accommodate themselves to him, it's this God and yet, this God does not demand that we all exercise our power in order to ascend up to God. That's a God of traditional religion, but not the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel is a God who humbles himself and descends here. He comes down to us. And the ultimate example of God coming down and accommodating himself and code-switching himself to us is the incarnation of Jesus Christ in this world. And when Jesus Christ came to earth... He did not bring judgment down on all the imperialistic impulses of our world and our lives. No, the judgment of God came down on Jesus on the cross so that the love of the Father could come down on us and make itself known to us, accommodate itself to us, and that we would be able to go out into the world and adapt and accommodate ourselves to others and make the gospel known to them. So friends, if you're here this morning or joining us online, I want to encourage you, whether you're spiritually curious or whether you're already a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you, seek this God. Seek the God who is there. Seek his presence. Seek his power. Seek his, his love. Seek his face. Ask him to make himself known to you and ask him to make himself known through you. This is a God who does it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning that you are not, um, you are such a gracious, generous God. You do not demand that, that, that people assimilate and, and adapt and accommodate themselves to you, but in your grace, in your generosity, in, in your humility, that you have adapted and accommodated yourself 
by coming down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for that. And we thank you for Jesus this morning. We pray this morning, uh, if, if for those who are exploring faith this morning, that, that you would um, help us all to see that the gospel is not a private consumer option, but public truth for the whole world. And for all of us this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us and fill us with your power. Help us to seek you. Give us a burden, Lord, to seek you more. Just as those first disciples were, were desperate for the presence of God, were, were aching for more of the presence of God in their life, I pray that you would put a deeper hunger for God in our hearts and our lives and make us desperate. Give us a burden to seek you, Lord. And I pray that you would make yourself known, not just to us, but through us, to the world around us as the best possible neighbors that we could be and as agents and vessels of justice and peace in this world. Father, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.